0: Good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. We're glad that you're here, and I'm glad to be here as well. Surely we can all think of examples of when seemingly small problems left unaddressed for a long enough time caused big damage. Several years ago, a friend's gutter was just barely sagging on the front of his house. No big deal. Right. Most people wouldn't even notice it. But then that fall leaves filled one end of the gutter. Then that winter water filled that same end of the gutter. That water froze. Icicles formed. The weight increased. And then one morning, the whole gutter ripped off the front of his house and the heaviest corner with all the weight of those leaves and ice, landed on the hood of his car. What started out as a small problem, just a slightly off-kilter gutter, when left unaddressed, caused big damage. And the same principle can be seen in our theology. We can innocently and unknowingly hold misguided beliefs about God That seem unimportant. But if left uncorrected, those honest mistakes can harm our spiritual well-being. They can harm our public witness. And if they become malicious heresies, they can harm our eternal salvation. Now that's where the preaching and teaching ministry of the local church can come in. It's the church's God-given responsibility to help God's people understand who God is as he reveals himself to be in his inspired and authoritative word. So then to that effort, we start a new sermon series today. Honest Mistakes, Malicious Heresies. Because sadly, based off of the findings from Ligonier Ministries' annual State of Theology study... The church has some work to do when it comes to our teaching. Ligonier conducts a survey every year and analyzes the theological beliefs of American evangelical Christians. And the results haven't always been pretty. The most recent findings show three main categories where we can get particularly tripped up. Category number one is our beliefs about Jesus. Number two are our beliefs about the Holy Spirit, and number three is our belief about ourselves. For those who like fancy theological words, that's our Christology, our pneumatology, and our theological anthropology. So this morning, we start with Jesus. We start with Christology. What should we know about the man we call Lord? And why should we know it? Open up to John chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together as siblings in Christ, as fellow church members, as fellow church goers. And maybe just as people made in your image, there might be people here who are not followers of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would be welcoming and hospitable to them. And I pray that we'd be welcoming and hospitable to all of our guests, especially new faces. I ask that we be an example of your kindness and your generosity and your patience to us and the way that we treat others. I pray that here at this church. I pray that elsewhere. Lord, I pray for our time in your word this morning, that we would be attentive to your word. Give us focus. Help us recognize what we need to learn about you. Help us recognize what we need to hear over and over and over again, even if we think we've already learned it. Lord, help us be attentive to the word that you've given us and appreciate it as the gift that it really is. And I pray for those people who call this church home. I know there are people who are dealing with illness, people who are traveling, people who are dealing with job transitions and grieving losses in families. I ask that you watch over the people of this church. Help us be the church you call us to be, to care for one another and love one another and serve one another, especially in those times of need. And again, thank you for your son, Jesus, who we get to talk about a lot today. I pray that we would never tire of talking about Jesus here of all places. We love you. We glorify you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, as we think about Jesus this morning, the biblical timeline is going to shape our study. And that means that we're going to start thinking about Jesus before his incarnation. So that takes us to John chapter 1, verse 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we use the word incarnation, we're talking about John 1 verse 14, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, whom John calls the word in this passage, took on flesh. That's what we remember and celebrate every Christmas, that God's son came down to save his people from our sins, stretching back all the way to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and all the way forward to you and to me. That's the incarnation. Sounds good, right? And we'll talk more about the incarnation in just a moment. But what about pre incarnation what's going on before the incarnation the son of god the eternal uncreated co-equal second person of the trinity exists what did john 1 verse 1 say in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god there's an echo there of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And guess who was there in the beginning, before anything was created? We're talking about God's son. The honest mistake that a whopping 73% of American evangelical Christians like us make is believing that the Son of God is the first, best, but still created being. And that simply is not true. The Son has always existed, even before Jesus Christ's incarnation. To believe that Jesus is just another creature like us is a heresy known as Arianism which was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This honest mistake has been around for a long time. It also contradicts passages like Colossians 1. Remember that hymn that we read a few months ago? How all things were created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus? Sounds like John chapter 1, doesn't it? In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And then in Jude chapter 5, Jude says that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. That can only be true if the Son existed before the incarnation. It's important that we recognize Jesus as the eternal Son of God. And not just another created being like us. Because if that were true, he would not be qualified to save us from our sins. More on that in just a moment. So that's Jesus before his incarnation. Now let's talk more about the incarnation itself. And for that, we turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter one, verses one through three, we read there long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. We just talked about that part. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Chapter two, verse 14. Since therefore the children, which that's us, the children, share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil he is able to help those who are being tempted. So who is the incarnate Son of God? That's Jesus Christ. But what is Jesus Christ? Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 tell us that he is fully God and fully man. Cyril of Alexandria once wrote that Jesus entered our likeness, became a man, while ever remaining as he was, God, Thomas Aquinas said, nothing more marvelous can be thought than the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, somehow some way at the same time. We see that Jesus is fully God in that Hebrews one passage, the exact imprint of god 's nature. Jesus makes himself equal with God throughout the Gospel of John. And the Apostle Paul calls Jesus God in Romans 9, 5 and Titus 2, 13. When Thomas calls the resurrected Jesus God straight to his face, Jesus doesn't object because he really is God. But then we get to Hebrews 2 and we see that he's fully man. He's like us in every respect. We see Jesus do human things throughout the Gospels. He eats, drinks, sleeps, and even weeps at a funeral. He even went so far as dying because that's what humans do. And Jesus is fully man. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man or 5149 or 6040 After his incarnation Jesus is not sometimes god and sometimes man he didn't just appear to be god or appear to be man the incarnate son of god is fully god and fully man and that's something that 43% of american evangelical christians get wrong And we need to get this right because Jesus could not save us if he was anything less than fully God and fully man. So incarnation, pre-incarnation before that, as we move ahead in the timeline, let's talk about Jesus's life and more specifically his sinless life. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, fully man, we just talked about that, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me that Jesus never sinned. Not once. What about those times he got angry and flipped over tables? What about the times he spoke harshly to the religious leaders? Those are sins, aren't they? Well, not so fast. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There's also such a thing as harsh speech uttered for the right reasons at the right time. So Jesus did not sin. In an even more positive way of phrasing it, Jesus is perfectly righteous. Unlike Adam, unlike Eve, unlike Jews, unlike Gentiles, unlike you, and unlike me. Now was Jesus tempted with sin? Absolutely. Our Hebrews passages tell us that. And Matthew 4 shows us Jesus being tempted by Satan himself. Yet without sin. Being tempted from the outside is not the same as sinning on the inside. Jesus lived in a fallen world, but he did not participate in the fall himself. He never sinned. And that's good news. Because if Jesus had sinned, his cross would be just another sinner dying. Not the Savior dying in place of sinners. We should be comforted that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. But we should also be comforted that he didn't sin in the way that we do. You might say that Jesus was just enough like us to redeem us, but also just enough not like us to redeem us. But then what comes after Jesus's sinless life? It's a sacrificial death. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom For many, Jesus's death is the means of our atonement by God. And it's been understood in different ways in the history of our faith. And many of the different theories of the atonement have some good things to say. But the most important way of understanding the cross is that Jesus took the penalty of our sin in our place. This is known as penal substitutionary atonement, penal, meaning penalty, substitutionary, being that Jesus is a substitute and atonement, meaning that we are now at one with God because of Christ's cross. It's expressed in passages like Romans 325, which uses the words propitiation, a sacrifice that takes away wrath. We see it in 2 Corinthians five twenty one that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now in recent years this way of understanding Jesus' death has come under fire. People don't always like the idea of a God who demands a penalty be paid. Some have even called the idea of the Father subjecting the Son to the cross a form of divine child abuse. But Jesus was a willing participant in the cross, not a forced victim. He said that he gives his life as a ransom for many. It's not taken from him by anybody. In Philippians 2, we read of Jesus humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. We need to know that Jesus took our penalty in our place, as our great high priest and our sacrificial lamb in a way that only he could. Because that is how and that is why we call Jesus our Savior. And after sacrificial death, we come to Jesus's bodily resurrection. In John chapter 20, verse 27, Thomas sees Jesus really alive. In the flesh. And Thomas couldn't believe it when he just heard it as a rumor. But Jesus tells him to look at my side. Look at my hands. Reach out and touch me if you want to. Jesus really died. Because he was really human. He didn't pass out or go into a coma. Roman soldiers were very good at killing people. Likewise, Jesus really did rise, not as a spirit, not as a ghost, not a hallucination, not a metaphor, but as a living, breathing, resurrected man, one Thomas could reach out and touch. Ancient people knew when someone was dead. Likewise, they knew that people don't get crucified and then live to tell about it. The risen Jesus, though, became the bedrock of early Christian preaching throughout the book of Acts. If they didn't believe he rose, they wouldn't have said it over and over and over again. And you know, of all our points this morning, this might be an especially good example of how something that starts out as an honest mistake can become something much worse. This small error can cause eternal harm. Why? Because if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, like really seriously physically rose from the dead, you're simply not a Christian. There's no way around it. You're out of step with the Bible. You're out of step with the entire history of the Christian church, even if you have the best of intentions behind you. Paul says that Jesus' bodily resurrection is of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. We can't afford to be mistaken on this, no matter how honest that mistake might be. So pre-incarnation, Incarnation, sinless life, sacrificial death, bodily resurrection, but now we come to what may be the most neglected part of Jesus' timeline. And that's his triumphant ascension. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. This is the earliest days of the church when the apostles are still trying to come to terms with this risen Christ. Verse 6 So when they had come together, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. The risen Christ ascended to the Father's right hand. He's being worshipped there as we speak and as he deserves. And guess what else he's doing? Paul says in Romans 8.34 that he is interceding for you and for me. How reassuring is it to know that Jesus is advocating for you right now if you're a believer in him. How wonderful is that? What a gift it is to know that, and what a gift it is to miss out on if we're mistaken about it and don't recognize it. After his resurrection, Jesus' ascension may be the most obvious expression of his victory His power over sin, death, Satan, and worldly powers and authorities. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that after Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been exalted. Jesus has ascended. And that brings us to the final part of Jesus' timeline that hasn't happened yet. And that is Jesus' promised return. Go back to Acts chapter one, one more time, right after the disciples saw this amazing vision of Christ rising to the father's right hand. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus told his disciples to stay awake at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Why? Because he will return as king and judge when we least expect it. Paul says the same sort of stuff in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. That's why we walk as children of the day rather than children of the of darkness, because we know that Jesus will come. And we need to know about Christ's return because it gives us hope. It gives us hope of a renewed creation, of saints raised, of Satan cast down once and for all, of sin eradicated, and of God dwelling with us and us with him. It gives us motivation to live faithfully now, knowing that we have something to look forward to. Jesus will return as king and judge. And we need to know this so that we can stay ready for his arrival. Now, I recognize that this is like drinking from a fire hose. But like Joshua said, what did you expect when I haven't preached in 49 days? And that's just a brief overview That's the tiniest taste. That's scratching the surface. That is a bird's eye view of what we believe about Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think this biblical picture of Jesus is way better than any cheap, shallow caricature of Jesus as a 1960s hippie, a motivational speaker, or a social justice warrior. Who cares about the unmiraculous Jesus of Thomas Jefferson's picked apart Bible? Who cares about the secularized Jesus of the scholars who question the Gospels? Who cares about the reductionistic, idolatrous images of Jesus we invent in our minds to justify or accommodate our preferences, our opinions, our desires, and our sins? Who cares about that Jesus? Give me the Jesus of scripture. Give us the Jesus that people got burned at stakes for. Give us the real Christ. Because he is better than any other honest mistake. And he is better than any other malicious heresy. Now before we end, a few closing thoughts. First, if you've been guilty of one or more of these theological mistakes about jesus don't beat yourself up too much about it instead become acquainted with solemn christian teaching about jesus before that honest mistake becomes something worse you have christians around you you have scripture to help you and you know to some degree now that you've heard this sermon You can't really claim ignorance anymore. It would no longer be an honest mistake. Now you may also ask, do I really need to know all this stuff? Well, yes and no. Yes in the sense that it's all important, or else I wouldn't be preaching on it. But no in this sense. I don't want this sermon series to make you leave thinking that when you die, you have to pass a theological quiz to enter God's presence. And if you don't know words like Christology, pneumatology, theological anthropology, and penal substitutionary atonement, then you'll be left out in the cold. Sorry, your love, your faith, your obedience, not good enough. You didn't know the vocab. It's not what I want you to take away from this. But I would ask you this, if you can know more about Jesus than you do now, why wouldn't you want to? Think about the first time you ever fell in love, your teenage romance, your first boyfriend, girlfriend, you just adored them so much that you wanted to know everything you could possibly know about them. You wanted to know their personality, their background, their likes, their dislikes, their hopes, their joys, their fears, their dreams, all of it. You wanted to know everything because you just love them so much. May our love for Christ drive us to know more about him. To know him for who he really is. And finally, does all this stuff matter just to Christians, or does this matter to everybody? Well, I think it matters to all people. Because contrary to 56% of American evangelical Christians who disagree, Jesus is the only way to salvation. He says in John 14, verse 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him him. These theological words, arguments, and stances are not just inside baseball for Christians to argue about. These are not just philosophical skirmishes to give us something to do. This stuff matters too much to us and too much to a fallen world for us to get it wrong. At one of the most crucial moments in the Gospels, Jesus asks his disciples who the crowds say he is. Some of the answers are flat out wrong. Others are partly wrong and others are partly right. But then Peter speaks up and calls Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know, it's a pretty good answer. Now, with that said, Peter still had a lot of assumptions that would need to be corrected. He made some honest mistakes about Jesus that would soon be overturned by his death, resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it's thanks to the word passed down by people like Peter that we have here today. It's because of this word passed down to us that we can answer Jesus's question a little more fully. Who do we say he is? We say he is the eternal co-equal son of God, fully God and fully man, who lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death for sinners, rose bodily from the grave, ascended triumphantly to the father's right hand, and will one day return as king and judge. To answer that question, who do you say I am, with anything less is a mistake and it's a mistake that we should correct before we're guilty of heresy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity to be in your word and to just get even the slightest glimpse of just the fullness and the richness and the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just skimming the New Testament and reading all these things about Jesus, I pray it would reignite in us a love and a desire to know him better, to know him more, Lord, to know you more fully, more intimately, that we might worship you and serve you and obey you as you deserve by your grace. I pray that we would never cease to be amazed by Jesus. No matter how long we've been Christians, no matter how many degrees we have or how many theological words we can spout or how much study we do, help us never cease to be awestruck by your son, Jesus Christ. Help us know you better so that we can worship you, obey you better, but so that we can also communicate you more clearly to a world that needs you. I pray that we would give you or give the world rather the full image of who you are rather than caricatures or rather than reductions that rob you of your full glory and your full power and your full goodness. Lord, help us know you better for so many reasons, but if nothing else, because you are just worth knowing and how great you are. Help us correct our mistakes. Help us correct our errors Help us come to know you better, fall in love with you more. We love you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.